All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fucksicles? A lot of you out there. What the fucksicles? I know it's still cold. I know it's still snowing. How are you? Welcome to the show. This is WTF. I am Mark Marin. I'm coming to you uh, early in the morning. Some of you might be actually up and listening to this early in the morning, but I am. Uh, I have to uh, get ready to go to set. Today on set, uh, we're going to be doing an episode with uh, with uh, ex-professional wrestler CM Punk. Uh, is going to be playing himself in another episode of Marin. I believe that uh, his pal Colt Cabana is uh, coming out as well to do a little part in the show. Uh, it should be fun. Hope I don't get hurt. Hope I don't get hurt today. That's all I'm going to tell you about that episode. Yeah, we got some good ones, man. I'm, yeah, again, again, I know it's uh, disconcerting for many, even myself, that uh, I'm having a good time. Every cell in my body seems to not want to acknowledge that because it is a lot of work. And I know some of you think, like, is it a lot of work, Mark? Is it being on your own television show? Well, yeah, actually, it kind of is. It is a little taxing. It is real work, but uh, but obviously it's very rewarding. It can be very fun. Acting is a blast. But, you know, you repeat things. Here's usually what happens. I, I familiarize myself with a script at night a little bit with the sides I have to read in the morning sides or the pieces of the big script that I'll... I'll be uh, I'll be acting in the scenes the next day, and then in the morning I just uh, I mark my script with a marker, and then I go scene for scene. Before the scene, I start running the lines with the other actors over and over again till I get them in my head. Then we knock out the scene four, five, six, seven, eight times, uh, and then we move on to the next scene, the next location. We just do that for twelve hours, and having coming into acting later in life, having always kind of done it here and there. But not uh, not at the level I'm doing it now. I'm I'm still you know obviously still learning. I, I think that through the first two seasons of Marin, I was okay. I think I got better in the second season, and I think I'm doing good now. I'm looking at the dailies, and well, I'm not even looking at dailies, man. I'm looking at full director's cuts as they go down the line of cuts, and they look good. I'm okay with it. What am I? What am I trying to get at? I'm trying to convince you that uh, that I have a real job. I do. I have several jobs. I, I'm acting in the show. I'm doing this right now. Uh, I'm doing comedy later, uh, and that's uh, those are my jobs. I know they just seem like a blast, but uh, I am uh, exhausted and working hard. How you guys doing? You all right? Kevin Allison is on the show today. Um, Kevin and I. It, there's a little backstory in the sense that no, we didn't sleep together. Uh, but uh, but Kevin had come in to do a WTF a couple years ago, I think, and somehow or another it was just fucked up. There have been a few in the history of the show that got fucked up for, for reasons that are still unclear to me. But now I do a backup. Uh, there was just a noise like Kevin had one of the ones where for some reason the recording was all in uh, like robot noise. It was just lost. It was garbage. There's been a few that have been fucked up sound-wise. I think we've tracked it to maybe cell phones, but it still doesn't add up with clicks and weirdness. But now I back up twice. I got this going into the garage band. I got it going into a Zoom. I'm not going to lose it. So you're going to hear Kevin Allison today. And I always like talking to Kevin. He's very nice. He's very funny. He's very filthy. <laughs> and I say filthy with love and, uh, and uh, compassion and a little perverse excitement because uh, it's fun to listen to people talk about uh, sex stories. And, of course, Kevin... Um, Kevin does a uh, podcast called Risk uh, that is uh, pretty popular. People enjoy it. It's a storytelling show. So Kevin will be here uh, momentarily. 
Anyway, anyway, the sun is pounding into my face through a window, and I don't... God damn. All right, I'm going to just sit like this. So, the Marination Tour... You can check those dates at WTF pod slash calendar. I'm doing like 17, 18 uh, dates in different cities, but uh, I know that uh, Toronto is sold out and I believe we're adding a new show. I will be able to confirm that for you on Monday. I, I, I would check over the weekend uh, in Seattle, uh, which is sold out. Uh, I believe we're adding an, another show uh, at the Neptune and Boston at uh, Wilbur. Another show has already been added. So, so that's happening, and I, and I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, hammering me to add those shows. Now, all right, I'm not going to let my uh, my insecurity drift into this. The you know the second shows, we'll see what happens. Right? It's all new to me selling tickets, people. Pow! I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop available at wtfpod.com. That's a classic plug. Don't do them that often. There you got one. It's actually not coffee. I'm drinking tea, but I felt like doing the plug. I'm still not drinking much coffee. I'm still off the nicotine, but goddamn, am I shoving food into my face like my 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 soul needs nourishment. Uh, I would like to say this. I am, as I mentioned in the pre-show plug on tonight's episode of This Is Not Happening. It's a storytelling show. I believe I'm on with Ms. Pat and uh, Steve Renazizi and my buddy Ari Shafir host a show. And I tell a story that you've heard in some version, probably on this show, about my uh, visit to the uh, to the neurologist and onward into the MRI machine, uh, which is sort of also a backdrop of uh, of one of the Marin on I, the Marin IFC shows this uh, this season. But but it's interesting because there's another story I told that I think I've told you here as well, and I believe I wrote about it in my book. There's certain stories. You know, that kind of stay with me, obviously. The story on the Comedy Central website for the This Is Not Happening that they have is not the one on the TV. It's about Frankie Bastille. And it's very interesting how everything works now because I just got an email from the woman that Frankie Bastille was living with when that story took place. Uh, when I knew Frankie Bastille, who's now dead, uh, you know, he was this junky comedian, but quite a character. And he, he, uh, he was with this woman, Karen. She just wrote me an email saying like, you know, I, I heard that you talked about Frankie. I got so many Frankie stories. And she reminded me of this. Like, I was just such a dumb little young comic, even though I thought that I was, a, you know, the real deal, that I was that I was hard and that I knew shit and that I'd been there and, and I was the dark wizard. And I, he, she just reminded me of this story where, where they called me from Mystic, Connecticut, and I was living in Boston, and they had totaled their fucking car, and he wanted me to drive down to Mystic, Connecticut to pick him and Karen up, and I was a young comic, and I didn't have shit to do, and I'm like, all right, I'll just bring my notebook with me and drink coffee on the way, because that's all I'm doing here. So I drove down, probably smoked a little weed, and I drove down from Boston to Mystic to pick them up, and he was like, you know, I need to go to New York to, uh, you know, I got to... Uh, you know, who the hell even knows what he said? But he told me he needed to go to New York to pick something up, and I'm such a dumb little shit. I didn't even know at the time that they needed to cop dope. But I'm like, all right, man, if you need help, he probably, probably told me he had a, you know, he had to do a spot or something. But I ended up driving down there. He ended up. He's like, I know Jimmy Tingle lives around here. Jimmy Tingle, who's a sober guy, a solid dude, who was living in the Lower East Side at the time, and so. You know, I take Frankie to go, you know, he goes, he says, pull over here and he runs up out somewhere and then he comes back into the car and within five minutes he's covered in sweat and manic and, you know, his eyes are jacked. And then uh, he's like, let's go by Tingles. So we go by Tingles, who was, he was on his way out to go do a show and Frankie's like, hey man, can I shower? 
And uh, and Jimmy was like, what's happening? I'm like, I don't know, dude. I don't know what's happening. I, I'm sorry. And so Jimmy, you know, let Frankie shower. And then I drove both of them back up to Boston completely on the nod. But for some reason, not quite putting it all together until that email came yesterday because I was a naive little man. Ah, the life. Huh? Let's talk to Kevin Allison. So you had him though. Yeah, yeah, I got bed bugs. And you know what the thing it is, like we do so much traveling. Yeah. That it's it, cuz the person right below me in the apartment below got them at the same time, but I'm pretty sure it was probably me. And right. and the fact that I have boys over constantly. So. I know, but what do you but I would think that bed bugs would be the least of your concerns as to what the boys are carrying in. <laughs> I mean like you, you know I would think that, you know, giving your apartment building AIDS <laughs> is a much smaller threat than, than the no, actual... I'm worried about the bu- bed bug bites on their nice, you know, f- uh, tender oh, skin. Oh, you're concerned about their uh, their bodies. That's funny. I don't want blemishes on them. They're, you're little, you're little <laughs> clean boys. <laughs> Wait, how, they're, how... they're, 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 here's the thing. Yeah. They're all Asian, which is... Um, I, something that for the longest time I was like, should I should I see a shrink about this? You know, about should, Asian boys. Well, yeah, should, like uh, why to, Asian? Is, is that the question? I think. It's, yeah, like why? When? At what point in my career in my life did I become? You know, I remember when we were at MTV, Michael uh, uh, Ian Black uh, had there was a there was a circle chart on the wall that yeah. MTV execs had put up, and it was fifty fifty. And uh, Black erased whatever the demographic things there were. And he said, uh, Puerto Rican and Asian. And then wrote it that the graph was who Kevin wakes up next to. (laughs) (laughs) So it's been going on a while. It has been going on a while. But but then the Puerto Ricans just dropped away. Yeah. Yeah, Were they too much? uh, Maybe they were too much trouble in terms of uh, emotional. I think so. I think there was a little bit too much. uh, Too fiery. Yes, exactly. Uh (laughs) These Asian guys barely talk. Right? They're, very, they're very, you know, agreeable. Yeah. <laughs> if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> Someone, just agreeable. Agreeable and clean without blemishes. Is, exactly. That's all you require. And chores. You should yeah. be able to do some damn chores. Is that part of the fantasy? Is that part of the sexual routine? It, well, it, it, do you it, sit there in a chair and go, could you get me my slippers? It's it's actually not erotically interesting to yeah. me. It's that I really, I'm like you. I could really need <laughs> some people that use someone cleaning up yeah, after yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it just so happens like in the kink community, yeah. there's a real thing for that. I know, I know a straight guy who would go to dominatrix's apartments yeah. and pay them for so the, he could clean up it, exactly was there, was there toilet licking involved and that kind of stuff oh no 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 it was like purely cleaning. i'm just cleaning your house did he wear an outfit or? well maybe sometimes but i think it was mostly pretty straightforward was it straightforward yeah but sometimes the outfit what outfit was? sometimes he'd knock something over and get a good thank and oh okay i see there's a little more to it Oops, look what I did. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, no, I don't want that. I don't want to go through the rigmarole. I just want the toilet cleaned. Right, no, it's not part of the... Uh, so <laughs> let, let's go back, Kevin, to uh, to, to <laughs> when, when all this started. I'm not going to... 
I got, let's go back before the state. Now you got a reunion coming up. I mean, this was this will post after that, but it'd be interesting to to talk about how do you anticipate this will all go? When was the last time everybody was in the same room? I think everyone was in the same room about five years ago. And and my experience is it'll be we're gonna have a week this week full of laughs, and then there'll be a couple of moments where there's just. <laughs> rage and really? tension. You think so? Bottled. No, there there will be there will probably be a moment or two of some people having to leave the room and being like, "Jesus, he's still like that." Really? All the- yeah, yeah, yeah. The the state the state has Almost always everybody is working. Almost everybody is sort of still. Oh yeah, of- we're we're actually. I I was the biggest problem child, I think, in terms of like what happened after what happened after. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, David Wayne wrote to the group about a year and a half after we broke up. And so that was around 96 when we broke up and he wrote, oh, let's work on another project again. And at that time, I was so drunk and so penniless and so just uh, beside myself because, you know, I felt like my life had gone down the toilet. After the state? Yeah. Ended, yeah. And I was just so full of fear. I, right. I, 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 I made the mistake of not going out on stage every night. I, I was so, all of a sudden, I thought all comedians were, you know, mean. And, yeah. Well, we were. Yeah. Especially <laughs> to you guys. And by that, I don't mean gay guys. I mean steak right, guys. Right. <laughs> well, we probably deserved it because we were mean to everyone else. But yeah, I, I was I was just kind of fearful. And you know what it was? was I, I was afraid of my own. I was afraid I was mediocre. I was right. afraid, you know, I didn't. I remember watching you at Luna Lounge all the time and thinking, wow, I do not want to become a stand-up comedian. Don't want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. He's got problems. No, no, no. Not that you had problems, but that it, it seemed to take so much courage to be able to get up there and be right, so right. damn raw and vulnerable. So and, he and, so you know, he wrote you all a letter. Oh, no. He, he said, hey, let's all get back together. And I wrote him back a letter and it said, I don't think I can do that anytime soon because there was a cancer of arrogance and greed that tore this group apart. And <laughs> that was just, poetic. that was a me cancer. lashing out, you know? Well, and, how did he respond to that? He, he he responded by sharing it with everyone in the group. And then everyone in the group was like, yeah, we can understand how he feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> and then a year later, they're like, how is Kevin? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. Is he in AA yet? That, has anyone talked to... It's been a couple of years since we wrote that letter. Has anyone talked to Kevin? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You were that guy. I was that guy, yeah. For 12 years, I just didn't know what... To, I was getting up on stage and doing funny characters telling stories. Well, let's... Like, but where'd you grow up? I grew up in Cincinnati, That's which like is like the most boring place. I, you it's know what? The most Republican town north of the Mason Dixon. A lot of people say you don't realize it, but once you're south of Columbus, you're in Kentucky. Right. No, I, I get that. I mean, and I've had good shows there, and I like the, some of the people there. There's a good comedy club there, but yeah. definitely when you drive into Cincinnati, you just feel like you've driven into the heart of sports and right wing politics. Absolutely. And Absol- I don't even know what the sports are, but there's something that city feels like sports. Oh. And you have spaghetti with chili on it that you got to eat. Yes, you got. Well, I love the skyline chili, but <laughs> everything else, I'm not a big fan of. You love skyline chili. Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think you. You know, I don't know many people who were raised there who don't like it. It's yeah, it's an acquired taste. You get the spaghetti with the chili and the onions and, and, the and cheese. cheese. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a strange combo. 
Yeah, it's uh, it, it is, but you, know, you love it. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, is it should bring back childhood memories? Like, it yeah. does, it does, and and there are places in the state. There are places in New York that will sell it at certain, you know, like a bar somewhere in Tribeca actually serves yeah. it. Yeah, we'll, like, g- we'll give you some skyline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> C- C- Cincinnati expats, the three of you. I had to come in, feeling lonely, need some chili and spaghetti. <sighs> so but, you know, but the foundational thing for me psychologically is that I knew I was gay. As soon as I was like conscious about things, yes. Yeah. Well, was your parents? Were you come from a Republican family? No, or? no, no. My parents were staunch Democrats. I mean, you know, like my dad marched in the civil rights movement and all that sort of thing. But when it came to sex, they were just 1950s Catholics. Oh, you right. know, Catholic, uh, super, super, super Catholic. And I, I was hook, line, and sinker. I have you know stories on risk about you know believing I was seeing the Virgin Mary when I was a boy and going down to Peru to, to uh, help the poor. Did and... you go to Peru? Yeah, I was, I was, it was either I was going to go into the performing arts <laughs> or become a Jesuit. <laughs> but I think that's a normal thing, but you, but you, yeah. did, but you didn't feel like this was before you were out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so st- did you feel shame? Oh God. Wait, wait. So I'm about, three and a half years old mm-hmm. when I'm looking at this statue, this Hummel statue of a, of a boy with his pajama bottoms falling off and you can see his, his butt yeah. and thinking, oh my God, I grabbed that statue and started running around the house saying, look at this, you can see his hiney. Yeah. And my brothers and sisters <laughs> laughed and then I thought, well, the neighbors, they ought to know about this too. So I start running out of the house to be like, look, look, you can see us, Heine. And all of a sudden I feel my mom grab my collar from behind and bring me back into the house. What they didn't realize is you were coming out. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like three and a half. Yeah, you can see his hiding. Oh God, she she said she said that's that's good. I'm just going to take this and put it where it'll be safe. Yeah, and it was gone. It was never to be seen again. Yeah, but they don't. Yeah, they and don't. I could just tell you from thought the... they, 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 that was proactive on their part. They're like he's overreacting to the hiney. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you could see a look. In, you you felt you felt like she knew then. Oh yeah, I could see a look in her eyes that was like fearful and this. Put how the kibosh on this. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Four. So I'm I'm uh, uh, the fourth of five children. Yeah. And there's how many? What's the breakdown? Uh, uh, two boys, uh, a girl, me, and a little girl. And um, so I was the space cadet, the black sheep, the 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 you know the gay kid in the yeah. family. But it, what, did they do things to to try to curb it? Yeah. Yeah. My brother Peter <laughs> was like the, he. he he has better. He has got to sign up for football, or he's going to become a fucking fag to my mom. <laughs> and so, second grade, I'm I'm eight years old, and I'm taking football practice. And here's the thing: after like eight weeks of practice, the, or whatever it is, the season's about to begin, and I still don't know how football is played. <laughs> I, I I asked the coach. I was like, "Excuse me, before we have this first game, could you just lay out on a chalkboard like what's the how does this game work? <laughs> and he said, look, it's just, you know, one team is trying to get the ball to this side of the field and the other to that side of the field. I was like, that's it? <laughs> like, I really thought, because I knew my, my father loved opera mm-hmm. and football, and he would take my brothers to the football games yeah. and take me to the operas. Oh, so see, he was 
And so I just assumed that football was yeah. as meaningful and like there was like if oh, you I understood see. it, it was going to be like understanding right. Wagner. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think it is to some people. I think yeah, I, apparently, I think there there is probably direct similarity between other than the competitive nature, but more opera and wrestling. I think is probably more <laughs> similar, but. But that's interesting. Those were the two sides of your father? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's a really, really interesting guy. I mean, he he loved Catholicism, but what he loved about it was Michelangelo and Leonardo and Handel and all that stuff. Yes, so, the pomp and circumstance and the, the artist. The art, yeah. And the cathedrals. Yeah. So, Wait, But he was a believer. Yeah, he was a total believer and a sweetheart. Yeah. Whereas my mom was a real... Puritan, you know, a real kind of like uh, no. Se- yeah, look, I'll go back to when I was about when I was about five. Yeah, I was exactly five. I convinced the boy next door, who was also five, to take all. I said, "Here, wouldn't this be funny if we took off all our clothes?" And I had this all planned out. If we took off all our clothes and ran around your basement listening to Walt Disney's Cinderella soundtrack, <laughs> that was your big idea. That's my biggest. So the song, like Cinderella, Cinderella. Oh boy, yeah. And then at one point, I said, "Wouldn't it be funny if you?" So you did that. Bent over. I said, "If you bent over and spread." Yeah. I don't know how I put it, but spread your butt so I can see what's inside there. And that moment was like a holy grail moment for me. White light. uh, Exactly. Exactly. Oh. Come on. Really? I, I swear to you. It was like, How oh old my. Were you? Five. And you felt, you didn't know what you felt, but you felt what? Well, I, he turned around and I had an erection. Yeah. And I did not, I was not familiar with that. Yeah. I, I, we were both, he was pointing at it laughing. I yeah. was like, oh my God, what the hell is this? Yeah. And soon after, his mom came down and discovered us. And? And I was not allowed to hang out with the kid next so, door. So no, no humble figures, no neighbor kid. Yeah. You're becoming a problem in the neighborhood. <laughs> this guy's got a, an ass issue. Totally. The priest, after I went to Peru when I was in uh, junior year, a priest called my mom and said, Kevin is such a wonderful student and was such a great contributor to our trip, but I think he has an anal fixation. <laughs> Just, How old were you? That was when I was 17. I mean, well, I, I guess he was putting it nicely. Yeah. I, yeah. What, what led to that comment? Just me always bringing that word into my jokes. And oh, everything. really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, okay. So now the neighbor, the neighbor kid, you're not allowed there. And the, the Hummel character has been put away. Football is a mystery to you. At that moment where the coach, and that was after eight weeks. You still hadn't, <laughs> so you were just there, what, rooting people on? Oh, I quit. I quit. I, I, I went home and said, look, this isn't working. Because I couldn't yeah. face it. You know, in truth, I, I, I told myself, oh, it's that the game is not as profound as I thought it was going to be now that I understand it. But no, I was terrified of it. Right, and I, I imagine the the dudes that were into it were were not nice. No, I grew up with this terror of male competition, and you know, it was when I was it, it, right after that incident with the boy next door when yeah. I was five. I remember just dreading, thinking. I'll be six next year, which means I'll be going into kindergarten, which means I'm going to be surrounded by kids all the time who might pick up on the fact that I'm gay. And You were thinking that? I was thinking that. I knew the words gay and fag, 
And I knew that they were terrible things. And I knew that that was a reference to what I was. So I grew up really with this inside horror and terror about that. And of course, being raised Catholic, I thought that it meant that I was ultimately, you know, going toward a life in hell. And you, but you believed in Jesus? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You had to, I guess. Yeah. And uh, how did you explain this to the priest? When do you start going to confession and whatnot? Well, that's the thing. When I was. 12 i came out to myself after seeing the movie et that did it yeah i've I've kind of well it's the story of a boy who wants a best friend and the friend feels like a freak because the friend is from another planet so i felt like i was a brown alien you were the alien (laughs) yeah in love with this body Uh, well but ultimately i also just thought henry thomas was cute yeah yeah so uh yeah after that i just broke down and said out loud for the first time i am gay and i thought to myself, to myself. And I thought... How old were you then? 12. Yeah. And I thought, how am I going to tell... When exactly am I going to tell mom and dad, but especially mom? And I remember that very week, I'm playing Marvin Gaye had the big hit, uh, um, Sexual Healing. Sure. She came in and she took the ghetto blaster that we had and she said, when this song comes on, and she pressed the button and said, the radio goes off. And I was like, well, it ain't, ain't going to be anytime soon. <laughs> so, so really, being funny was my way in kindergarten and, uh, you know, grade school of letting people know that there was weirdness inside of me that uh, and letting you know it's okay that there's weirdness inside. But were you ever were, like there? How were you behavior wise? I mean, you're pretty you know, you're pretty butch. You're not. No, 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 no. I didn't have, you know, stereotypical gay, whatever yeah. ways of acting or, but, um, but I had, but, but I was so horny all throughout my childhood. And I was just afraid that if people found out that I would lose my family and friends, you know, you might've, uh, well, the first two people I came out uh, to, it was the end of those really my very best friend from, uh, first grade through seventh grade, I attempted to say that I was more interested in the young leading guy in E.T. than most people. He kind of got the gist of that and stopped talking to me for a year and a half. It, it was the the enemy ship, everyone called it. And uh, for a year and a half, we weren't talking and everyone in school knew it. And, and we they knew why? Well, they didn't know why, but we ran against each other for school president in uh-huh. the eighth grade, and yeah. he started putting stickers around the school saying, Kevin Allison is a bisexual. Uh, it was a smear campaign. He was just saying bisexual to hedge his bets. You yeah. Know? Right. <laughs> but that was actually the nicer way to do it. Right. Like, he, he didn't say fag. He didn't say homo. Right. He's he a bisexual. <laughs> So, like David Bowie. Yeah, it's like a toothless smear campaign. Like, you know, you well, it was kind of a, he's being pulled a pretty polite kid, actually. Uh, but I won. It didn't work. Yeah. So, you know, I, and, and right in so you you were popular. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like the, the, I think that a lot of what risk is about is I'm a person who's gone through his whole life obsessed with the idea of coming out about whatever it is. Whatever it is that you feel like, oh, God, can I talk about that to other people in mixed company? 
you know, uh, your your drug problem, your the the way you never got over the death of someone, whatever it is, right. can you come out about it? And I feel like it really is a reaction. For me, it's all this perverted gay craziness, mostly. But I feel like it, 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 it's a reaction against my mom you know, on some level, mm-hmm. creating this podcast. And, and thank God she's 75 and has no idea how to get an email, much less download Oh, a really? So yeah. she's completely out of the loop. Yeah, well, she... Maybe if he called the, the podcast, fuck you, Ma, <laughs> she would have gotten, figured out how to listen to it. <laughs> no, she knows. She says, I have heard that the podcast is rather raw. <laughs> and I've said, yes, it is. But I've said, listen, Mom, I've had people write to me, hey, I was able to get my son off of heroin after he heard the Under the Influence episode. Uh And uh, people write in, I was suicidal. And then I started hearing people sharing these stories. And I was like, wow, I'm not such a freak. Or other people have been through really rough. Great feeling. Yeah. Yeah. People kind of feel less alone. Yeah. Know how to talk to a kid that they didn't know how to talk to. Yeah. Realize that, you know, if we're not careful, he's going to end up like that guy. <laughs> You're right. Yes, exactly. Right, right, right. Like, like maybe we should be a little more open hearted about this. <laughs> Lest he have this need to be. Uh... There was another thing like 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 I said, outbursts of craziness uh, were what I thought was the way to show that there was weirdness inside me as a kid. Right. Well, well. Right, right, right. Because you had all that energy and and you wanted that type of attention, but you couldn't clearly uh, meet your desires. Yeah. So so you lose a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. All your siblings know you're gay, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I came out to them officially once I was in college. But they they all sensed it. All, I think so. Yeah. But what's interesting to, to me and your father, what was he sort of passive in this whole? My father was when I said, w- "Were you surprised?" He said. No, you have five children. You you have to. He said, I'm, "I just thank God none of you guys wanted to go into the military." He's <laughs> <laughs> <Case> five. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 kind of hilarious. But your mom just couldn't. It, I I understand on some level. I can be empathetic to. I think they're they they're usually just frightened for you, and and like your your you know your safety and in in the, I guess in the case of being Catholic, your soul. Yeah. So she's a real believer. Yeah. She did a lot of crying when I did when I came out to mom and dad. It was when I was eighteen. Finally, after Peru. Uh, yeah, after Peru. So wait, what was this Peru thing? Now, were you trying to ungay yourself? No, no, I was trying to see. Uh, how it was that I could do good. So you're you know trying what I to mean? negotiate with God. It's like, I know I'm gay. I'm going to go do this good stuff, and maybe that'll get me points. You know, maybe maybe if I do enough good stuff, I'll just go to a, a more fun gay hell. I guess so. I get Now that I think of it, I guess that, you know, a lot of, like, in the same way that when I get up on stage yeah. now, I will be like, see how friendly and nice I am? All right, now I can tell you how I just <laughs> tied my shoes to my balls the yeah. other night. <laughs> Um, so yeah, yeah, I think, I think I probably at that time thought that I could pull one over on God too. Like, see, I'm doing good stuff. So I hope you don't mind that I'm shoving, you know, hair brushes up my butt. (laughs) Well, that's it. That's it. Well, that, that is an interesting 
line to, or like the a balance to keep because like if you see yourself as perverted, yeah, or 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 that your desires are are unique, yeah, and and you attach some moral significance to that. That struggle, like, because it, your desires don't necessarily have anything to do with your heart. Yeah. You, you, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I want to be a good person, but can I be a good person if I, my shoes are hanging off my ball? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think on some level you could say, like, uh, not only am I a good person, I'm a clown. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, But I, but I don't know how, the heat of fetish. I don't know that. Well, I think that, you know, there are some fetishes that I now have that I don't talk about on risk because i'm like damn that's that really is too fucked up for most audiences to hear about and i and i've talked a lot to friends about it and realized you know what part of this fetishistic stuff is it's chasing after the tremendous shame i used to feel as a kid because there used to be a process of getting all wound up and horny, yeah. masturbating, and then feeling like, oh my God, you know, like shaking, like where am I, what's going to happen to me I because- I'm, it, I'm garbage. Yeah, yeah. So that dynamic, now I can sometimes play it out every now and then again by doing something where I'm like, whoa, that was really fucked up. Uh, I hope I don't get any more into that particular fetish or kink or whatever it is. And then that's what becomes kind of attractive about it. Well, so, okay, so it's almost an addictive process. So, like, see, the thing is, at some point, you're not sated. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, you can come, and that's not enough. Like, for me, uh, good come, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I don't don't need to elaborate too much. Yeah. But but then again, I never felt the compulsion to sort of like, I'm going to try this. You know, life is short. Why don't I tie my shoes to my balls or whatever you did? Right. You know, I I don't think that. I I don't know what those (laughs) feelings are. But I I, I don't think I necessarily have the courage to to role play. Right. Because to me, I don't know how you don't go like, this is silly. Look what we're doing. Right. Because you got to commit, right? You absolutely have to commit. (laughs) And what I've learned is... I can commit 100% in role-playing if I'm the submissive, if I'm the guy who's bowing on the floor. Right. But when I'm the dom, the nice guy thing is... I've tried to... We were talking before in the kitchen about... uh, I've tried to have houseboys before, and I would love to have one again, but the first guy... He left after a month and a half. He he was a, a student at Parsons, and uh, he he was from Malaysia and everything. He was interning for you, yeah, yeah. sexual intern, exactly. Yeah. And he left after a month and a half because he was like, "You're just there's no sadism in you whatsoever. You're just too nice." Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh. so I created a class. And then you hit him. <laughs> <laughs> like, how dare you? <laughs> so I created a class called Secrets of a Sweet Dom. Whenever I feel like I don't have something that people want sexually, I'll just create a class on it and start teaching it. Where do you teach these classes? There's a place called Dark Odyssey. Yeah. It, it's a kink camp that I ordinarily go to. Uh-huh. That's getting ahead of ourselves again okay. in, in okay. the history. All right, so okay, so you come back from Peru. You, your priest says you have an anal fixation. <laughs> you, what'd you do down there? You fed some people? What'd you? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a, it's, it was another. Now you realize, looking back, it's like. Oh, we weren't doing anything to help that. I mean, we were supposedly building a school right. for some kids. Right. And we would show up at the ditches we were digging every day, and the people were... This is like really, really poor people on the uh, in the desert slums outside of the city of Arequipa in Peru. 
they would use these ditches as toilets. Right. So every morning we'd have to dig their poop out of the ditch to continue with our work. So they were literally shitting on you. Yeah, they, they were like, whatever, we have a better use for this than whatever you guys think this right. is going to yeah, become. Yeah. yeah, thanks for the toilet. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see what almost became a school down the street? Right, right exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so... so But I was still very devout. I told a a story in front of the 1,300 students at my high school. I went to a Jesuit high school about the experience of going down there to Peru. And I guess I should have recognized at that moment that true storytelling was a thing for me. Um, What was your relationship with your priest? Oh, he was he was a closeted gay man who was, you know, like like so many of those guys are closeted gay men. Well, no, I I talk to the about this to Catholics all the time. I think that there is a community sort of um pressure when they recognize a gay kid, Absolutely. get him into the priesthood to save his soul. My mother the week before I came out to her, we're doing the dishes together. I'm dry and she's washing or vice versa. And she starts crying, and I'm like, "What? What? What? What's up?" And she said, "Well, I'm just thinking of your uncle Jay, who's a priest." Yeah, and I was like, "Well, what's what's what are you upset about?" She said, "Well, he'll never have, you know, a romantic partner to like share everything with." And I just sometimes that just makes me terribly sad. And I was like, "Oh, all right." Then a week later, I come out to her. The next day, we're doing the dishes again, and she says. Have you seriously considered being a priest as an option? <laughs> Get your mind off the cock. <laughs> I won't mind crying while doing the dishes about you as long as you're in the priesthood. <laughs> Not doing that other thing. That's too- but were you out to your priest, though? No, 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 no. There was- so confession wasn't even functioning. No, oh, no, no, no. I couldn't. I, I, I didn't. It, what it was was when I was around 12 and I first came out to myself, I was like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to go to confession because I had also read Huck Finn at that same time. And he, there's that incredible moment where he decides he's thinking, am I going to help my friend get to freedom or am I? And if I do, I'm going to go to hell. Uh, or should I do the right thing and turn him in, the right thing in society? And he says, nah, you know what? All right, then I'll go to hell. And it seems like it's just a funny throw-off moment, right. but it's pretty profound, yeah. you know, that he thinks he's really choosing hell over turning in his friend. Right. So I kind of felt at a certain point like, no, you know what? <sighs> If I'm going to hell, I'm going to hell because this just this feels so natural to me. There's no getting around this. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So now you're out. You came out to your parents before you go to college mm-hmm. and your family. How did the siblings react? Now they were all totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a generational thing. You still uh, get along with all of them? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. We're all, you know, my parents call every week crying about why aren't you all closer you know right. I, like like why don't we all stay in better touch with each other but you know relatively speaking we all get along yeah yeah it's, yeah it, it's hard you know i got a brother we're, we're tighter now you go through periods yeah for sure know. for sure and you've got uh, nieces and nephews and yeah it's yeah. A, like the biggest problem is that occasionally a sibling marries someone who's insane you know <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. they marry something. Yeah, 
something doesn't set well. Yeah, you don't have any control over that. Gotta, no. Just got to watch the, the train wreck unfold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, all right, so you go off to college. Mm-hmm. And that's where you meet the guys? Yeah, what what it was was I got to NYU and I saw Joe Latrulia walking through the hallways of school and I thought, holy crap, he, I was like really thought he was really Into hot. Joe. Joe Latrulia, I know, isn't that funny? Little Joe? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he used to, he came straight from Fort Lauderdale, so all his clothing was just as Miami Vice as it could be at that point. <laughs> and uh, I remember, so, so one day I'm walking down the hallway and I see he's in a, um, he's waiting to drop ad yeah. uh, with a uh, uh, counselor. And I said, all right, I'm going to sit down when he goes into the drop ad and eavesdrop, find out what class he's getting into, then I can get into a class with him. Yeah. So I was kind of stalking him. Yeah. Got into a class with him. The very first movie he makes, it was a movie class, was about just how much he loves his girlfriend. So I was like, all right, forget Joe. Yeah. But then he said, my comedy group is going to be doing a show tonight. Now, wait, did you ever try girls? Uh, No. No, I didn't. I, I, I kissed a girl once. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I, and, and here's the thing. I was so terrible. I tried to. It's the comedian thing. I tried to make a joke out of the, our budding relationship that yeah. we were. This was in the fifth grade, so I don't. I don't even. What's that? Ten or something? Yeah, I think so. And uh, yeah, one day I was like, I got something for you, and it was a ring box, and inside was just like a mound of mustard and some coffee grounds. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it? What is that? just always like doing bizarre jokes yeah. rather than how that land that did not land well at all but you try you kissed a girl and it was not for I, you i kissed her and in my mind's eye i was like oh this is that was like kissing a dog's nose you know mm-hmm. just being dramatic because i wanted i had put a lot of pressure on the moment it was the first spin the bottle game in the fifth grade mm-hmm. uh first alcohol party and um I had wanted there to be fireworks like Bobby Brady on right. on uh, whatever, the Brady Bunch. And it wasn't. And then that night I woke up from a dream where I got stuck in a revolving door with the boy next door again, yeah. who's now 10, yeah. <laughs> although still discouraged from hanging around me. And and we kissed in the dream, and it was so powerful that it woke me up. Now, when was the first time you kissed a guy? Gosh, well, whew, I started... I started using my wiles of uh, wouldn't it be funny if we took off all our clothes on a on a, my best friend in uh, roundabout when we were 11 or 12. Right. So we started streaking and st- he's, you know, he's just a straight guy yeah. who, 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 you know, I, I think a lot of young guys that age are just like, well, we're not doing anything with girls yet. Let's yeah. do a little experimentation. Yeah. And he probably was not aware of just how manipulative I was being. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we did a lot of um, taking off all our clothes and rubbing up against each other and not, yeah. not, not actual sex or kissing because that would be gay. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be gay. <laughs> Yeah, want to have some fun time rubbing. Yeah, yeah. So I look back very fondly on that whole experience, but uh, but I wonder if if you Facebook friends with that guy. I I I was for a while, and and you you have to wonder if you approach that person today and said, "Do you remember that?" You know, they probably would not. They say would, sure. Yeah, yes. they might not say yes. <laughs> I want to thank you for rubbing on me because that really helped me in my development. I don't know if you remember that, but it's pivotal for me. 
the streaking and rubbing we did. Did you talk about that on the podcast? The rubbing? <laughs> no, I haven't yet. Yeah. I should explore that. You always have to invent new names for people. You know? Of course. Yeah. All right, so you 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 got a crush on Joe Atrulio. He's got a girlfriend, but then he says, "We got I got a comedy group." Yeah, and I went to see the very first show that the state ever did that night at uh, it, it, this little black box theater in NYU. And what struck me was that as soon as that show started, there was this energy in the room that I I just assumed I was like, "Wait a minute, we're all like freshmen here. How long is this?" group been around because the audience was so lit up and the group was so lit up and there was just this feeling of this is a really happening creative entity um and it it was their first show and there was like what 12 of them yeah there was like literally there was like 16 when the group and then then like five disappeared before the first show started um yeah, but most of the most of the core group was was there in that first show, and I remember saying to my friends that I went to see the show with my brand new college buddies. Yeah, uh, I want to be in that group, and I remember them saying, "You," because that was my thing. I was always bland, nice Midwestern Catholic boy until I would get drunk and start being really funny. So that became my plan. I'm going to get into more and more classes with those guys, hang out with them afterwards, get drunk, take off all my clothes in public, and <laughs> uh, start group. to impress them that I'm crazy. <laughs> and it worked! <laughs> so you got in a group by just, like, stalking all of them. Yes, yeah. Like, uh, yeah. I've had that feeling. I mean, I've done that when I was in high school and stuff, or even later where you're like, well, those are the cool guys mm -hmm. those are the guys they're doing something i want to be part of oh absolutely and i'm just a, a needy too much information kind of draining guy yeah how do i you know wedge my way in yeah well you're at nyu you're like jesus you know we're only here for yeah. four years it's you only live once let's get into the group that's making the funny movies what was what was the what was the moment that uh, impressed them. The moment we were all out at this, uh, so I had gotten into a film crew with uh, Joe yeah. and Michael Jan, and we went out with the rest of the group one night to this bar called the Dugout on Second Avenue in the East Village. It was like a, a sports bar, and uh, I got very drunk, and I went into the bathroom there of this bar. And realized that I was standing in about an inch of uh, urine water, yellowish water on the floor there at this bar. And I took off all my clothes except for my boots and headed out into the bar totally naked in a in a East Village bar and lifted a glass of beer and started improvising a, a wailing song, which all I remember of it was that it started... Standing in an inch of urine well becomes the sailing man. <laughs> and then it went on from there and everyone was like, we've got to get this maniac in the group. Yeah. That was your audition piece. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was your showcase. <laughs> and, they, and they let you in. <laughs> they let me in based on that. And that was, what, uh, the end of freshman year? That was uh, sometime in sophomore year. So I started contributing uh, written pieces to the group and then it was sometime in junior year that I became a full-fledged member. But um, but it was really rough and hard because the group was, from the very beginning, super competitive. Um, 
and super, you know, there, there's, there was that roasting sense of humor. Between. Uh-huh. I always joke around in my stories and say that everyone would poke at each other's egos in order to make sure no one's ego got too big. But my problem was my ego's always been too small. Right. So I was always kind of the nice guy who would often just end up low on the totem pole because of it in terms of what does that mean low on the totem because if you wrote something then you got to cast it right right and there was a lot of tension all the time about who's getting more roles or not and is this fair and is this democratic who was running the group well that's the thing the there no one was officially running the group but there were several people like uh tom lennon and ben garant and Michael Black, uh, who were just writing sketches so consistently. Showalter and Wayne? Showalter and Wayne, definitely. But Wayne was Wayne was the person that I should have looked to as my greatest inspiration throughout the whole process because he was a lot like me. He was the guy who would make everyone laugh in the writer's room, and then everyone would say, we ain't doing that. Though. Yeah. You know, that was really funny, but you're ridiculous. You're, you're too silly. Um, I would get that same reaction. And, you know, like Mel Brooks used to have to deal with that on your show of shows. Right. Like, we all loved that, but we can't put that on right. TV. <laughs> um, but who was deciding that? The rest of the group? Yeah, it was, always, it was always a vote. It's so funny because we all have mellowed out. Like, like, like Black really was a, could really be a snarky asshole to you yeah. back, back in the group. Um, I remember him once just like, uh, filling his mouth with water from a from a bottle and just spitting it all over me for no reason. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> like what the fuck was that? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think we've all really mellowed out. Black is the guy who most inspired and helped me with the whole idea of starting Riz. Really? Because when we went to end MTV. I was the one who proposed. My ideas were usually shot down. And I, well, here's the thing. I could propose an idea to the group and people would say, no, 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 no. And then someone else could just reword it. Right. Yeah, and right. everyone's like, that's great. Right. So the when we got to MTV, I suggested, look, we rib each other all day long. Can there be at least be like a half hour at the beginning of the day? Where we just like drop all that and 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 tell each other how we're really feeling, uh, which is funny because that's kind of like risk, you know. Um, and so at the beginning of the day, we would have check in. This was an an idea of mine that the group actually liked. And what happened was because everyone in the group would hang out with each other twenty four seven, except for me, because I was the gay dude who wanted to be going out at night, you know, being gay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in some sub basement in the meatpacking district. Did you do that stuff? Oh God, yeah. I mean, I was always, I was always going to orgies and sex clubs. I just in di- college. Yeah, yeah, and that's what my first stories on Risk are all about—the misadventures of a young. Midwestern friendly guy who's yeah. you know in Central Park at four o'clock in the morning. You did all that old school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I always say to people, I think I'm basically a 1970s queer. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I, right. I I should have the hanky out of my <laughs> back pocket. Um, yeah, I, the young guys today with all the oh, we're so precious. We want to get married. We want the white. But also, there's just tender. There's no reason to or whatever the gay version is. Uh, what what is that one? The, oh, oh gr- grinder, 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 like they're. Like there's a, you know, there's a, there's, there's no, 
it doesn't seem like the the mystery and the weird secretiveness and the you know, sort of like there's that area where you got to go and wander around the bushes. I I imagine it still exists, but now people are meeting there on purpose. Like I'll see you at the thing, and well, people go to gay bars, yeah. and you'll see them on Grinder being like, "Oh, I'm I'm on the other side of the room," right? <laughs> like, oh, I'll take my head out of the phone for a second to nod at you. Yeah. So yeah. all the uh, mystery and excitement is. Uh... And also a lot of the community, like mm-hmm. gay bars, many, many, many less gay bars today than in the nineties. So they've like they've they're no longer necessary. Or yeah, yeah, people are just hooking up via these things, and I think that there needs to be a lot more talking about what we're all about because people treat each other online terribly. Yeah, you know all the, the famous grinder line: "No fats, no femmes, no Asians." Is like. Could anything be more, like, rude to, yeah. to, to have as your regular profile? Anyway. So you were running around. You were going to uh, the meatpacking district <laughs> in basements, finding yourself in interesting situations with several people. Yes. And then I would show up at MTV the next day, and I'd tell my story at check-in. And Lennon and Black were always like, jeez, Kevin always has the best check-ins. <laughs> <laughs> So Black was like, you should get up on stage and share this stuff. And I thought, no, wait a minute. Hollywood is not going to like that. That's not going to get me a role on a sitcom one day, yeah, right? right. Uh, so I, I just said, uh, it just seems too risky. So for the 12 years after the state broke up, I was just doing bullshit on stage and being totally fearful and hiding behind characters. And it wasn't until Black came to one of my shows of, I did a show in 2008 called F Up about five characters who had fucked up their careers. Mm -hmm. Obviously autobiographical. Uh, but it still wasn't really connecting with people. But at at that time, were you devastated when the state broke up? Totally. The, The night... That we were the day that we were fired from CBS because we quit MTV because yeah. we thought we were going to hit the big time on the networks. Thought we were going to be on ABC going up against SNL, right? And then they pulled that out from us just as soon as we had quit MTV officially, I think. And then we went to CBS instead and did one special. And Les Moonves was coming into. CBS at that time. Changing the guard. Yeah, and he was like, I can't wrap my mind around 11 kids sketch comedy. Just get rid of that show for now. So they, we were just immediately fired after who, one who special. Who would speak for the group usually in, in those situations? We had two managers who, who did not get along with each other, and it was messy. And Why'd they, you have two managers? Uh, one was an, a former agent, uh, yeah. a William Morris kind of guy, and another was an MTV producer or, you know, freelance producer at MTV. And the two of them would not share all the details with us a lot. It wasn't, we didn't even know, I think, that MTV had actually offered us before we quit uh, five more seasons. So that would have been like, I don't know, triple the amount of episodes we'd already done. And we and we also didn't know that MTV was just about to be in 25 million more homes. So we really, really should have stayed put. Yeah. Um, 
but we tried to go for something that we thought was going to be bigger and made the same mistake with movies. We had an independent producer who did Kids and who did Citizen Ruth and a bunch of big indie films. He wanted us, but we were like, no, 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 we're going to go to the Walt Disney Corporation who mm-hmm. strung us along for a year and a half until we were starving. So some misstepping, and then was it, did that cause infighting? Yeah, totally. The, the, the morale of the group just, just fell into the toilet, and it seemed... It, it was one of those cases where it's like, it's kind of like a marriage where you're like, oh, geez, no matter what we're doing, this is, this is just crappy now. Yeah. Yeah. And so everyone goes their own way. Was it, there was, was there rifts that were unresolved? <clears throat> there was a, um, w- w- there was an unspoken, unofficial thing. None of us takes on a job that is going to seriously take us away from being able to work with the group, from making the group our main this thing. This is after everything falls away. Yeah, it, well, yeah, 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 after CBS and everything, it was still kind of that situation. Right. Where you could take little freelance jobs or whatever, but not something that was going to take over your whole career. And uh, a few of the guys went over to Comedy Central to pitch Viva Variety. Yeah. And Comedy Central took it, and so all of a sudden... About three or four members of the group, three or four or five members of the group were there, and the rest of us Was it were Carrie, Ben, Tom, uh, yeah, and uh, Black, right? Um, and the rest of us were kind of out in the wilderness, and so yeah, there was some very, very serious uh, tension at first because I remember they invited us to their first live taping, and we got there. It was our makeup people, our lighting people, our old sets oh, yeah, and everything. Yeah. And it was just every everything except like five of us. That's horrible. So there was just a feeling of, um, of you know, like I, that, that, that really ended up breaking it all up. And there was a lot of tension around it. But here's the thing. In retrospect, I really came around to see that those guys were just doing self-defense you know the, those guys were doing what anyone would do you know you got to eat you got to find the next job and the group no one could deny that the group at that point was just completely dysfunctional and demoralized and just having a hard time agreeing on anything so i really can't blame them but because of your particular lifestyle you know you you probably you felt completely set adrift i imagine oh god yeah go on what were you gonna say i'm just saying because your whole identity and and everything you had worked towards emotionally was built around this group and you were already uh sort of an not an outsider but you were the gay one yeah who had a hard time controlling his impulses and his drinking (laughs) so i imagine when everything got got hard you just God knows what you did. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I did. I really lost my mind. And that's that. That's about the time that I also discovered Fire Island. You know, you, 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 I was now at the age where I had friends who were able to get their hands on serious drugs, you right. know, like par- serious party drugs and stuff like that. So, yeah, I was. And also I became obsessed with this idea of the survival job. You know, I started doing cater waitering. Oh, and I, really so you your confidence didn't enable you to really perform at all yeah i was i i would get up at luna lounge right. um you know once every two or three months and that's that's that was me continuing to do work in the business but i mean just it, all character work yeah you, you couldn't you didn't have the courage to sort of get under that yeah i mean if if i had 
had the sense to, I should have gone right to UCB and started taking classes, you know, because they were just starting at that time. And that would have been crazy seeming because here's a guy who was on this big hit TV show now taking classes. But that would have been a hell of a lot smarter than just hiding in my apartment most of the time. But who the hell knows if that would have worked? I mean, it seemed like you were like that, that your identity outside of your gay identity, which was evolving, but your professional identity was completely locked in with those guys. I mean, you probably had you know, what you needed to move on, but you just didn't have the confidence or the, you know, or your shame was too great or something. Yeah. And I was, I was too, I, I, sh- I should have stayed in much better touch with everyone else. I was, I isolated was what it was. And you were and drinking a lot? I was drinking a lot. And, uh, you know, I would have some, even like some suicidal moments. That's when I started taking antidepressants. Yeah. So, so yeah, those were just really rough Is- yeah years those were years of like going from one survival job to another and being recognized all the time catering yeah catering i remember having to like carry a tray up to doug herzog at at a ballet fundraiser once who was the president of i guess he was the president of comedy central by that time and mtv before yeah 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 and just handing my tray to the waiter next to me and saying, I am not going up to that table. I don't wonder. I wonder why you chose to, to do that. It, you know, it's it's it's, it's but it's so a, demoralizing. But, but but you but sexually you like that. It's a submissive position. Oh, you know, it's funny because Joe Latrulio did it for a week. And then he was like, you know, because he was like, I need some money, too. And, and I said, well, there's this thing I do. So he did it for a week. And then he was like, Kevin. No one with <laughs> any self-respect can do that. And I was like, yeah, I know. I'm going to keep doing it for a while, I think. <laughs> but it's interesting how that, that, that you know, plays itself, you know, in your emotional script, uh, you know, sexually as well, that there's something about the comfort of that shame. Yeah, and and acting out. Because when I was catering, I would be the guy huge line of waiters walking out of a kitchen into the Metropolitan Opera House. I'm the guy with the bottle of wine in his hand who is literally dumping it into his mouth as he's walking out on, you know, before anyone can see. I would, I remember, you know, throwing up in a fucking tuxedo right in the, you know, in in the yard of some, you know, Connecticut wedding. (laughs) remember blowing another waiter at some big like shishi wedding oh god yeah it was it was those were messy years <laughs> not your not your shining moments no. you know, those were not the best years but it's but it, it is kind of odd the this sort of this war against shame yeah that like that the podcast risk, you know, is, you know, really on some level about. Yeah. Because the only thing outside of, you know, general appropriateness that stops people from speaking their their heart or sharing those moments that, that could be liberating and, and not just for themselves or others, the only thing that stops that, uh, if it, it, you know, like I said, outside of it being the appropriate time to do that is shame. Yeah. And shame is, is so powerful and it's what holds so many people in that weird stasis of you know not being able to take action of not being able to to make their life better because shame runs so fucking deep yeah. that it just it feels like home to a lot of people yeah yeah exactly exactly i think it's you know 
that is a place of comfort and you know the the, the guilty feeling like i i have a running monologue in my head all day long of oh you you should be ashamed of the fact that you don't keep the house tidier it just goes from one thing to another you just beat yourself up all the time yeah beat like myself you're ne- up you're never yeah. never it's never right never yeah. good enough never like i'm always but you, but it's weird though cuz you like when you sexualize that does that get you any relief uh, you know, it's really strange because it's it's in the times that, like I said, like when I've when I've had those BDSM experiences where I am one hundred percent committed to being like, like almost like a slave serving someone on the floor. There's real comfort in that because it's giving up all control, and there's no reason to beat yourself up because someone else is. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a context, and it's. You know, it's safe to a degree. Yeah, yeah. You you can't, that situation can't really work unless you, the sub, have respect for the dom, right? A lot of people think domination is, oh, I'm going to be brutal and yell a lot and all that. No, a a sub is going to react to someone that they feel like this person is smart and sensitive enough to know when they're going too far with me or that sort of thing. So what now how did you get involved with fetish and in, in, in kink in general? Because when risk started, I I kind of lost a marriage at the at the very beginning of risk. When I, when I was 31, I entered into a relationship that became a marriage. We literally got married. And in fact, we've never divorced because we're like, "Ah, oh, it's $500 to get divorced." The Asian guy? Yes. And and see that's that's the thing. I mean, once once I was married to a Filipino guy for 9 years, then that was the turning point of after that I was just not interested in <laughs> in anyone else. I mean any other uh, yeah. uh, ethnicity or whatever. Um so yeah, it was an open relationship, but it was open with very strict parameters. There was yeah. no actual romance allowed to be happening with other people. Right. Just you could casually have a hook up with someone or go to a sex club or something so that worked for us for nine years and it wasn't the open part of the relationship that ended up ending it it was that after nine years we felt like we were more like brothers or friends and and the romance was kind of gone and we felt like god we we just don't feel like we're lovers anymore so we went our separate ways and we're still friends which i'm proud of actually i think that's a a good thing when you can make that happen yeah um, but anyway, part of the breakup was that I started risk and I realized, oh, this is going to become to be doing a weekly podcast and starting to travel and do shows. And then it, I was starting to try to create a school too. I have a school called the story studio. Um, how's that going? It, that's going well. That's the thing that pays most of the bills. I do a lot of corporate workshops, especially, mm-hmm. and you know, I have to explain to people, you know, we tell X-rated stories or any kind of stories on risk, but storytelling translates into any realm. You know, right. you just make adjustments for the context. Um, so that's the story studio is going great. Uh, but anyway, in those for in that first year and a half, he was like, you're not making any money on this and it has become your full time job. I can't hang around anymore. I, you need to get a full-time job. I said, if I get a full-time job, then that's the end of risk. And risk is the first thing that's worked for me artistically since the state broke up. Yeah. So 
we just agreed that 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 was going to be it. Yeah. Um, and I can't blame him either. Yeah. You know, I, 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 we both understood where we were coming from. Although I did say to him, listen, hang around a couple of years and this is going to like start taking off. And indeed it has. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Oh, uh, so all of a sudden I'm 41 years old. I've got this podcast and I'm telling people, take a risk, take a risk. And so people started challenging me to take risks. So a guy came up to me once after a show and he said, I'm going to this kink camp in a couple of weeks. You should come with me. And I said, oh, I know I've told stories about doing crazy shit in my 20s that were sexual, but I really don't know anything about bondage and discipline and sadomasochism. That was just me going to clubs and stuff as a kid. And he said, no, Kevin, take a risk. (laughs) (laughs) So I go to this kink camp and this became the most famous story that's been done on Risk. It's like a two-episode story called Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. And I show up and there's no gay men there. I hadn't realized that, oh, this is like mostly straight, even lesbian and bisexual people. But here's the thing. I, I kept telling people at the camp, I, you know, the people are like, well, there's plenty of bi men here. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. A guy who grew up like me, I can't just poke someone on the back and say, hey, you want to like, I have to know that everyone in the room is a gay man and it's totally safe. Otherwise, I'm afraid you're going to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Could turn very easily. (laughs) (laughs) So I just couldn't get over that conditioning. I couldn't get over that, that, you know, this is in fact a safe space. So at the end of it, I ended up uh, just having my first sexual experience with a woman who... uh, Now, it wasn't me stooping her. It was she got out a a strap-on. Her Uh name was Strap-on Joe. Uh So that was a hint of where it was all going to go. Right. (laughs) So so that was your first sexual experience with a woman. Yeah. (laughs) Getting fucked. By a in a in a sling, yeah, and in some like grungy back room of a. <laughs> now is King Camp in the woods? Or... It is. It's a former Boy Scout camp. Oh, yeah. isn't that so that's ironic? Nice. Yeah, yeah. So, so did, in, in, and was it that experience uh, that sort of started you on this strange fetishistic path? It did. At the time, it was this sort of eureka moment where I felt like, because in my early 20s, I felt so connected to the gay community because uh, ACT Up, we were still dealing with the AIDS situation at that time. So ACT Up, there was a lot of activism and there was just a lot of like, oh, we are the new sexual revolution. Right. But by the time I was done with my marriage, uh, the new gay thing was marriage. Yeah. Like, the, you know, uh, uh, let's try to fit into the rest of heterosexual society as best as we can. And all of a sudden I couldn't relate yeah. to most of the gay community anymore as far as I could tell. So here I was in this kink environment. All these people are straight and bi people who are basically taking all their notes from things that they've learned from gay culture in the 50s and 60s. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. Um, it's a little behind the curve, that's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Maybe these guys had something going there. Yeah. yeah, and the internet makes it all possible. You know, FetLife is like Facebook for kinksters, and yeah. people just share and share all these ideas of things you can try. You know, there's a group for every fetish, and... 
It's crazy. Well, what fetishes have stuck with you? I mean, like, which ones did you, like, I'm not gonna, I never thought I'd be that guy, and now you're that guy. Yeah, well, exactly, like, when I had my, the, the, the second story that I did on this subject was called Beyond Kink Camp, where this Asian guy wrote to me one night on FetLife, and he said, hey, uh, I understand you're into Asian guys, I'm into mature guys, yeah. <laughs> and you're like, I guess I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and his his handle was something like Little China Boy, you know? Uh-huh. So I'm like, all right, this works. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but as we got to know each other, he's a 25-year-old, you know, college student, yeah. super smart, who knows the ins and outs of BDSM because he's been studying it online yeah. for years. You know, I'm like completely out of the loop. He's having, he would, we would get on the phone and do role playing and he would be like, we did, we had, we didn't meet for the first five weeks. It was all on the phone or texting. And he would say stuff like, should I crawl on my hands and knees with my tongue out and wagging my ass for you like a little bitch daddy? And I'd say, Yes, you <laughs> you do that. Because <laughs> otherwise, I'd be like, uh, actually, I have no idea what I'm doing here, young right, man. Right, right. You know. Uh, so eventually, uh, he he had these midterm exams, yeah. right? And it it had gotten to the point where he was so mentoring me, he was teaching me this, that, and the other. So finally, one day, his midterms were over, and I knew, oh, he's going to be. It's he can talk to me again because he's finally done with all his studies. So I called him and I said, "Are you exhausted?" And he said, "Get on your knees. That'll make me feel better." And I was like, "Whoa!" He's turning the tables, and I realized that I had like an instant erection. Yeah, and he keeps talking to me like this. And I, I asked him if I could masturbate, if that was okay while we were having this conversation. He said, okay. He said, but but isn't this humiliating for you that I'm telling that I'm telling you I'm spitting in your face and telling you to lick my ass? And I said, yes, but I feel like I would kiss the ground you walk on right now. And he said, then you're ready. <laughs> and he said, Friday, you're going to get a text from me. Be- keep Friday night open. So Friday, I get a text from him, and it's this long list of instructions. Duct tape the front door of your apartment building so that it won't lock. Duct tape the door of your own apartment, or just leave so that you're, on You're putting everyone in the building at risk. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> for, for, for your fantasy. This is someone I have never seen. And he's like, I want you naked, bowing on the floor, with uh, blindfolded. Uh, for when I arrive. So it's this weird thing where I'm like, well, he'll be here sometime in the next hour, you know, and I'm naked and blindfolded on the floor. And, and you take mi- the doors. Yeah. And your mind just starts to go, you know, when you're staring into blackness like that. But the last thing he texted me was, oh, by the way, those images I've been sending you of me these past five weeks, those are actually of me. So as I'm there blindfolded on the floor, I'm starting to think, why was that the last thing he said? It hadn't even occurred to me before that those might not be him. Might this not be him? <laughs> and then I start like thinking, wait, is he already in the room? Can I, is that his breath right near my ear? You just start flipping out. You but know? you're committed to it. But I'm committed. You don't pull the blindfold off. No. 
And he comes because, you know, he's got this sort of, I don't know, um, uh, energy over me at this point. So finally I hear he does enter the room and he starts talking to me. And now here's the thing on Grindr. In the past several weeks, I had also been flirting with this black guy. This guy was like a PhD and uh, was very knowledgeable about cinema, about foreign cinema. So we were talking about Fellini and Bergman and all that kind of stuff. And I finally decided with the black guy... Um, you know, I'm, I don't know. It's, I, I've got to focus elsewhere right now. I'm, I don't think this is going to work. And he, the last thing he texted to me on Grinder was, oh, you're not going to get rid of me that easily. So when the young man comes up to me and pulls my, you know, pulls me by the hair once he's actually in my apartment and I start like feeling around. Eventually we got to the point where he had tied my hands behind my back and he was making me take his underwear off with my teeth. And when I felt his cog hit me in the face, I was like, this is not a five foot three Chinese guy. (laughs) I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. This guy feels and seems much taller and he smells like a burly alpha man i was like i think this is the black guy from grinder <laughs> yeah so so i start to just like go into it he's making me call him master well you don't know the voice yeah well no i i knew the voice from the phone yeah. but i still you know it's yeah. still maybe the guy on the phone was just fucking with me so he put on this different blindfold on me and at a certain point he could tell that i was gone that i was kind of like going into another you know energy because i was freaking out about who the hell is this guy and so he said i'm going to open a sliver of this blindfold so that you can see so i'm kind of like searching with one eye around to the room just you know oh there's a light bulb there and then i see these asian eyes yeah and i was just euphoric because i was like oh that was all in my head. Yeah. Like he just had that that effect on me. Yeah. So he started skull <laughs> Yeah. He started skull fucking me and now I was just totally like relishing it. Yeah. And and you were asking before what's something, you know, where, where you didn't think that would ever happen before. He, he would do these things to me like he, at one point he was like i got to go get something here just stick your face in my boot for a while so he shoves my face in his boot and i'm smelling this smelly boot and finding that there's this tremendous comfort in this act yeah. like i'm like i feel like a kid a baby with his blankie all of a sudden <laughs> yeah and then when he's doing the skull fucking thing i start to really gag i'm not used to i wasn't even familiar with the fact that some people get off on making you really choke yeah so at one point i I pulled back just out of natural and then but then i felt his cock like kind of jump in my mouth and heard him go ha 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 and realize oh he really likes that when i start to be in pain and gag on it so i started just doing it again and again and again, like deliberately hurting myself in order to give him pleasure and kind of loving that. And so that was really a moment of, what's going on here? I've never like felt this before. And finally, I started to have this realization that there is this thing about Asian guys 
where, you know, I know that they feel so alien and weird and considered in American society to not have all the prowess and right. the sexual, they're not the sex symbols and all right. that sort of thing. And I know from being a little boy and feeling so alien and feeling like so afraid that I'm so weird and different that I remembered seeing The King and I when I was eight years old. Weirdly enough, it was Sarah Jessica Parker that took me. Yeah. One and only time I've ever seen that person. <laughs> wait, wait, why, why? She just happened to be the best friend of the girl next door, oh. and they had extra tickets. Okay. <laughs> so Sarah Jessica Parker took me to the night that I saw The King and I and the birth of a fetish. <laughs> How old were you then? I was about seven or eight. <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker? <laughs> yeah. How old was she? I don't know. She's like four years older than me, maybe. So your kids? Yeah, tiny little kids going to see The King and I. Uh, well, with her, uh, the next door neighbor's parent. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, I remember seeing the king and how the king was so magnificent and yeah. how he would whip people and stuff like that. And I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I want to bow down before a guy like that. So here I am with this, with this guy who's got me blindfolded and my arms tied behind my back thinking... I know what it is. I see Asian guys on the subway and I look at them and think, you think you're weird. You think you're an alien. You think you can't talk about what's inside you normally out in public. Or sing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or dance. <laughs> but I know that inside you is, is a king, you know, yeah. and I want to bow to that. So it's at that moment that I'm having this little bit of a, like almost like an out of body remembrance of that and realization of what's going on here that I throw up water all over the floor because I've finally gone so f too far with the so, gagging. So you're getting, you know, mouth fucked. Yeah. And you're thinking about the king and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I saw a musical. That's a, that's a, sorry, you throw up all over the place. <laughs> I throw up all over the place. And then I said, sorry, master. And again, I said, now I, I felt it again. I felt, you know, because earlier I was not able to say master when I thought he might be someone else. So that was the big breakthrough. <sighs> that was kind of a breakthrough. And the thing of it was, I was always searching. For, I've been searching for that since, you know. Yeah. The thing about these kinky sort of things is people always say oh now you're on the beginning of your kink adventure but i've had mostly disappointments since then you know um there are many times that i feel like oh yeah. <laughs> it'd be nice to just settle into a perfectly normal <laughs> well maybe that'll happen i mean i don't think that... i think you have to just be open to all of it yeah 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 is that something you want I, I, yes, I do. I, well, I would like not not monogamy. Right. I've never wanted monogamy. Yeah. Um, but but yes, I would like to have a primary partner. You know who you know, kind of like my husband back in the day. But I could still explore and experiment and and I think that when you're with someone for an extended period, you fall into 
uh, patterns and, sure, and you know, you're, 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 I, I would not want to be with someone where every night it's like, all right, let's string you up and yeah, yeah, yeah. pretend Here you're, we go again, right. hoisting you up with a <laughs> elaborate pulley system. <laughs> but yeah, who knows what the future holds? I, th- I think that, um, I think that I, I do, I am feeling my age lately. How old are you? You know, I'm 44. And I did start drinking again. Yeah. About, well, in February. Yeah. How long had you not? Nine years. Be careful. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, I've. Don't get sad again. Well, I've succeed. That's the thing. I've succeeded at the literal, uh, whatever you call it, moderation of it to a certain extent. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, not as much as I would like, but it's the sadness, you know. That it'll just feed itself. And, and guilt. Yeah. And guilt. I ha I think I'm more addicted to guilt than anything else. Shame. Yeah. It's a it's like guilt the, the there's a moral component to guilt, but it seems like you, you've got a shame core. Yeah. So if you do things that you feel guilty about, it's just gonna feed that monster. You're better off, you know, getting skull fucked than becoming a drunk again. Yeah. <laughs> Words to live by. Thanks for talking to me, Kevin. I'm I'm so happy for your success. Check out the show at risk-show.com. All right, buddy. All right, folks, that's our show. I I love Kevin. I thought that was wonderful. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Do what you got to do over there. It's a little early for me to jam out of my guitar here in the garage. I know some of you are going to be like, oh, some of you are going to be like, oh, thank God. Thank God. Saved. Now I can just ease into my day without Marin in a very needy and uh, demanding way blasting his okay guitar improvisations into my head. Not today. Go look at the tour dates. Uh, at WTF pod slash calendar. Go post a comment. Do what you got to do. Buy some merch. Give me more posters coming. Thank you all for the tour art. I will get back to you personally when I have time to sit down. I've chosen uh, almost all the posters that I'm going to be using for the tour. And I uh, can't stop fucking eating. Just sit at craft services all day. Grazing. Shoveling things into my face at different speeds. Sometimes desperately. Sometimes casually. But sometimes I eat hard. I eat hard, folks. Boomer lives!